My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, today won't be a review of such, it's more spurned on by an email that I received from a listener. And during our conversation they asked me like, what my top 10 favourite films were and would I uh, do an episode in which I discussed my top 10 favourite films. And um, I decide, I like the idea of those kind of top 10 things. It's always, I'm always interested in other people's lists. I'm a, one of life's great list makers anyway. And I decided rather than do like my favourite films, I'd try and give them um, a particular theme so although it might seem slightly strange um, for this episode I've decided to do um, top 10 films that either remind me of the summer or I like watching in the summer and um, that might seem slightly daft brain as, as I speak now um, here we are what coming towards the end of April and I'm actually debating putting the heating on I've, I've, I've already got two layers on um, my cat's resemble sheep they seem to have grown so much fur in the past 24 hours but i think i'm going to be a big brave trooper and um kind of resist that urge um before i get into that um, we had the oscars at the weekend um and this was something it was something really depressing i found about the whole oscars and everything about it was when i was a lot younger i used to really like the oscar ceremony um i seem to remember i think the first time i watched it I think it was like when Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon won an Oscar for, for Good World Hunting. And I remember being really inspired watching that show, watch, seeing those two young guys step up and uh, receive an Oscar that probably William Goldman actually wrote instead. But it, it, it was something about it. that it, it, was, it was aspirational. It was inspirational. And I really enjoyed it. It seemed to be really fun. It was a genuine celebration of film. And really kind of caught on with how I felt about film. Like it just enthused me to go and watch all the all the films that were kind of had been nominated that that year. And obviously, I think over the past year, uh, things have been obviously kind of kiboshed by COVID. But what I found really depressing was this year for the Oscars, I had not seen a single one of the Best Picture nominations. Not not a single one, and obviously that's down to me. But you, know, you can't obviously get to the cinema. You could, I notice, get hold of a few of them on um, illegal download sites, which I didn't want to do because I know most of them are going to be playing in um, cinemas in Manchester as soon as things open up again in May. And I, you know, I want to go and give my patronage to to, to, to these institutions. But there was this constant um, obsession over the ratings, which have plummeted in recent years, by the, by the millions, by the tens of millions, in fact, less than 10 million people watched the ceremony on Sunday. And you, of course, have a load of people saying that the reason why this has happened is because the Oscars have gone so woke. There is a kind of, um, you know, people are bored of being lectured to by rich celebrities telling them about climate change while simultaneously flying rounds on um, private jets and whatnot. And I think part of it does play a part in that to a degree. But protests at the Oscars are hardly something new. Um, the the all-time all most awful one, I think, was probably Michael Moore when he picked up an award for 9 uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 and it was a shame on you, Bush, and all that type of thing. And I think what's happened is, I, I think what's more indicative is that people have stopped celebrating film 
um, in, in the way that they should. I, I, I do think that these the idea that there's kind of agendas behind um, the voting as well. Quite famously, um, a couple of years ago, I think after Moonlight won, I can't remember what film it was, but it was. I think it might have been in reference to one of the films I'm going to talk about. Actually, Call Me by Your Name, um, and, I, and there was someone was quoted as saying, "Oh, well, we did that last year um, because, like, obviously Moonlight had won the year before in terms of best best picture and all that kind of thing." And I. I I really find it quite hard to work out how you can make something like the Oscars so unappealing. and But they seem to have done it. They, they seem to have managed to make people who love film, which I, you know, I do and I know a lot of you do and a lot of people I know do, um, and, and turn it into a kind of such a polarising event that people are kind of staying away in their droves, where if it was just an outright celebration of the best films of that year. And I think what should the direction that the Oscars should go in is firstly get rid of the kind of this absurd sort of idea that it's all about Hollywood. Diversify the Oscars in terms of the fact that I, and this it really frustrates me when kind of people to talk about cinema because for a lot of people it just means American cinema. It's a world world cinema. Diversify the amount of people voting. So you get films from all warps of you know, all, all corners of the of the globe as it were and celebrate film celebrate film as a world concept um you know obviously parasite won um last year and i i firmly believe that the reason why parasite won was for the right reasons i think it was the best film of that year and i, I think the amount of films which you know, come out around the world which are obviously snubbed i know they have the best foreign film but i i, I it seems very strange to me i think there needs to be a, a an approach of celebrating films and i hate to kind of use terms but go through aesthetics show us the best films as opposed to what the ideology seems to be behind them which is kind of the direction i think of which a lot of oscar voters go to and it's quite frustrating to watch because i want to love the oscar ceremony i I want to really enjoy it i want to see those lists of films and kind of work my way through them and occasionally i do it um even now i'll I'll, I'll pick a year and then just watch all of the the films that were nominated for best picture that year and you discover some great some some great stuff and to me it's a very simple fix which is make it about films stop the kind of get over this idea of cinema just being about american films and take it out to the world a little bit more possibly have it hosted in different countries i don't know but it just seems like the evolution. It seems like an easy fix to me, which is to re-engage with film-loving public. And I have nothing against award award ceremonies as well. I think people should be um, recognised for their achievements in all warps of life, and films no different. And they are obviously. I think there's a certain glamour attached to them, and you, you kind of get swept along with them a little bit. I like seeing kind of stars on the on the on the red carpet, and you know, I, I love film stars. I think I think it's a really important thing for a lot of people, and it just seems very bizarre. But year after year, there's this kind of pontificating over what's going on when I think the answer is there in plain sight. Celebrate films, celebrate the medium, make people passionate about it again, as opposed to this kind of tweaking the form. And I think the worst part for me over the years where they try to hide certain awards in ad breaks, which I find absolutely despicable, like, you know, like the best short film was going on, we'll, we'll have it during a, an advertising break. I think that's outrageous to be honest with you um everyone deserves to be up there and getting their kind of moment of glory so just a small rant to begin things with and again i I don't want to kind of overstate the fact that i I think 
a lot of people were saying, oh, they don't watch it because of the wokeness. And I think that's a, a fairly easy bash to make. I think there are, a, I, think, I think it's more than that, um, which is the problem with the ceremony. But that kind of minor rant aside, I am going to begin then. These are t- 10 films that I've chosen, which I, most of them I think I've watched during the summer. So I kind of have an affiliation with them or they remind me of aspects of the summer, which I enjoy. And it's always a bit strange, like, you know, when it's a beautiful day um, to kind of sit inside a cinema. But I live in Manchester, for Christ's sakes. I mean, um, there's two types of weather here. It's either quite cold or very cold. So you don't really get to, uh, I suppose, I suppose the the watching films that are kind of set in sunshine or kind of set on nice beach it's actually a nice form of escapism i suppose when um as the other day i, I went to go running and just opened the door and went no nah, fuck that and walked straight back in it was so cold but um i'm going to get on with this this there's a 10 films they're not in any particular order um they're just 10 films that came to me that i um wrote down a few notes about they're not particularly long reviews. I'm not going to go into them. I'm just going to kind of talk a little bit about them in general and what they mean to me and why. So um, many thanks for the person that emailed me that's kind of inspired this. And I hope there's a few films in here which you might not have seen or you might have already seen and decide you want to go and watch again. But without any further ado, I'm going to crack on. Muscles are firm. Not a straight body in these statues. They're all curved sometimes impossibly curved, and so nonchalant, hence their ageless ambiguity, as if they're daring you to desire them. Okay, so first up then in this list is Luca Gordini's Call Me By Your Name, and I don't think there is a more romantic place on earth than Italy. Uh, The last time I was there was in 2018, and aside from receiving a speeding ticket that I won't pay ever, I spent a glorious week sunning myself in Tuscany, drinking wine by the gallon load, reading my books and genuinely enjoying life to the full. There is a pace of life that is most agreeable. Early morning missions to procure bread and cheese and the ever-present clock watching to when you can start drinking the aforementioned wine. My cutoff point was by then 12pm and normally my drinking sessions would last to around about 11am the next day. And of course most of this is probably nonsense because to a degree I was on holiday and what I was experiencing like most people on holiday is in no way shape or fact a reflection of reality it's just a fantasy that one builds from themselves that everything in Italy or wherever you are is great and you want to move there and have a house there and when you come back you're going to bore everyone in the office about you know you could retire there and you're looking at the numbers it's complete nonsense we all do it and it's part of the joys of going on holiday but of course there is a kind of dreamlike existence to the place and I think that is best captured in Call Me By Your Name. Now I never had a homosexual relationship with an older man in my teens. I do recall at the tender age of eight having a crush on a barmaid on holiday in Lanzarote. But regardless of all that, Call Me By Your Name is a magical film um, in my view. It's one of the best films that I've seen definitely over the past 10 years, if not the best I think. And part of, I think, its appeal to me was it dispensed with the angst of homosexual reality, um, homosexual relationships, sorry, that we often see in films. Its two leads, Olivier and Elio, might not actually even be gay. They just fancy each other and want to have sex with each other. And partly, perhaps, this is just the romance of their surroundings and the situation that they're in. Holiday flings can be intense, often heartbreaking exercises. 
promises are made to see each other afterwards and these never really come into fruition. I rather distinctly recall the rather tragic sight of my brother calling a girl he had met and had a fling with in Benidorm, I believe it was, only for each time he called to be told by a different member of her family that she wasn't in, she wasn't about or they hadn't seen her for a few days. And you could virtually see the girl mouthing to whoever was answering the phone to tell him that she was doing something else. And he never did get that uh, call back. And I dare say it's an often repeated story. Call Me By Your Name elicits for me a nostalgia of feelings, moments of holiday with girlfriends that in their time and place were utterly perfect, drinking wine overlooking the ocean, simply watching one's partner swimming in a pool and a rather glorious moment when you're away from your normal existence in a foreign place where you think in a moment that your life of picking up fresh bread in the morning and listening to the birds and the sun come up is your new life. And despite the ever so slightly twee score at times, Call Me By Your Names, it's to me at least a near perfect film. Beautifully acted and directed, with arguably, I think, James Ivory's best script. This is the perfect afternoon matinee in summer. It's romantic, it's uplifting, it's heartbreaking to agree, and you don't know how profound an impact what has happened on Eli and Oliver will be in the years to come. Will this be remembered? by both as just a holiday fling or in later years where they think of something as more profound but one thing's for sure for me it's a modern classic and every time I watch it I get the rather dangerous idea of going back to Italy where despite my kind of brazen I'm not paying my car parking fine I'm still paranoid that as soon as I arrive in Italy I'm going to be spending the next few years of my life in a foreign jail which is one of these bizarre um Kind of things I torture myself with occasionally from watching too much banged up abroad on National Geographic or Discovery or whatever. But overall, call me by your name. Yeah, you cannot go wrong with this. And I think you should also, as pretentious as it sounds, um, watch this film whilst downing a bottle of rose. Um, Audi do some pretty great ones. There's one that's made on the slopes of Mont Ventoux in France, which I know technically is not Italian, but it seemed to have done the job for me. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion, filmed in a way you have never seen before, and as no one else would dare attempt. But the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. Okay, so moving on to my ninth recommendation. So Vertigo may be the Jimmy Stewart Hitchcock film that critics adore, but in reality, as much as I like Vertigo, I don't see why it gets all the level of love it deserves, and that's a debate, I think, for another day. When it comes to sheer entertainment from Hitchcock's, I don't think you can go much wrong with Rear Window. And to watch this film in the summer, I have a set of criteria. It, the time must be at least nine o'clock in the evening. It must still be hot, and you must have the window open to listen to the last sounds of the day. As doing so, all adds to the experience of watching Rear Window. I'm sure you already know the plot of the film. Jeff, played by Jimmy Stewart, is holed up in his apartment with a broken leg and becomes convinced the person who lives opposite has murdered someone. And of course there has been a murder. And of course Jeff is right. But somehow, and no matter how many times you watch a film, there is a nagging doubt that he's simply had way too much time in his hands and is beginning to see things that simply aren't there. Voyeurism is synonymous with Hitchcock and I think it's fair to say this might be his most voyeuristic of films and in the modern climate one can easily see Rear Window as being heralded as a rather problematic piece. Jeff controls his girlfriend Lisa sending her into danger and appears to take excitement from seeing her do her thing and also he sits there inventing slightly derogatory names 
for the women he sees, Miss Torso, Miss Lonely Hearts, etc. But possible detractors forget or indeed most likely deny one thing. We love to watch other people and pry into their lives and voyeurism is an appealing drug of human curiosity. Hitchcock knows this and it's why Rear Window is so engrossing. I'm not sure if it's the best Hitchcock film but it's certainly one of my favorites and it's it's one of those where i can just it's one of the comfort films i suppose and as i said it is best watch i think in the searing heat of a british summertime evening where it might just clip about nine degrees okay so moving on to the next pick about three years ago about three years ago I had a weekend of plans on the Friday I was to meet a mate after work for drinks and a meal on Saturday I was to go walking with another friend followed by a nice meal in a pub and on Sunday the plan was to meet another friend for lunch and then watch a film followed by drinks in the hopefully glorious early evening sun then every single one of them cancelled all of them and I was left with literally nothing else to do and not enough time to arrange anything else so I went home on my own and decided to watch films all weekend like a loser and that Saturday afternoon it was particularly hot like so hot one sweated simply walking up the stairs and I won't deny I was a tad depressed that the weekend had gone from one of being social interactions to just me and two cats who due to the heat meant that if you ever so much as moved near them a shower of fur would fly off them requiring hoovering up every five minutes in my mild depression, I decided to cheer myself up by watching Henri Clouseau's The Wages of Fear. You most likely know the story. A group of desperate outcasts must drive trucks filled with nitroglycerine through the jungle to put out a fire. One tiny bump and its curtains for everyone. And The Wages of Fear is one of the most stressful film experiences one can have. And in the striking heat of midday, and partnered with cold beer, the act of viewing the film almost became interactive. You root for the characters, you are combating the film's thoroughly fatalistic outlook. I could talk for hours about it, and one day I most likely will, but nothing can top it for suspense. Clouseau manages to extract every amount of dramatic tension from every possible scenario, so expertly you feel like Hitchcock's title as the master of suspense needs to be reassigned. It's also for the perfect film in, if you're feeling slightly depressed, as I was that weekend, because no matter how bad your life has become or is, it will never be as truly god-awful as the people you are seeing on screen. Okay, so Steven Spielberg virtually invented the summer blockbuster, and with a filmography that includes Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Close Encounters, and of course, Jaws, there is multiple films to pick for this slot. However, I decided to go with Jurassic Park. Now, bizarrely, I wasn't all that taken when I saw this film at the tender age of 14, but by goodness, has it aged well for me. Spielberg gets just about everything right. The characters aren't simply window dressing, waiting to be munched up by the dinosaurs, although most of them do. They're people you like, even the kids are annoying, as all kids are, but you like them too because they remind you of, that you were once an annoying child also. And the film is a masterclass in building suspense and wonder. Yes, those first dinosaurs look a bit ropey, but the actors sell them. You get over the artifice, I think, very quickly. And of course, all this is underpinned by what I believe to be John Williams's best score. 
And when the inevitable does occur, the CGI never overcomes the film. You don't feel that the spectacle is being compromised at the expense of storytelling. CGI hasn't ruined films, it's just that people have forgotten how to use it in a way that complements and enriches storytelling. Ridley Scott's Gladiator is a prime example of how well it can work. Maximus starts off in the minor leagues out in the desert and graduates to the Colosseum. So when he walks out into the arena, you feel the escalation, the grandiosity, and of course the spectacle of it all. Jurassic Park keeps T-Rex back. You know the fucker's coming. He's all over the advertising. But only when he's raised from his millions of years of slumber, it's every bit as wonderful, scary, and as thrilling as one could hope for. Yet what do we remember about the film the most? It's a cup of water vibrating as the camera slowly pans in on it and the incredible sound design. And Jurassic Park is the work, I believe, of a master filmmaker who knows exactly how to sell you a story like this. Watching it now, I cannot believe the 14-year-old me was a bit sniffy about it. And part of my enjoyment, I think, um, has been enriched from visiting Universal Studios in America and going on the Jurassic Park ride, the John Williams score playing, and you almost, almost felt for one very brief moment you were actually in the film in Jurassic Park. It was also, it was in short, a magical experience. And one of those, as a young person, you can honestly say your life was pretty great at the time. And watching Jurassic Park, I think, is a good reminder of just how great Hollywood can be and why movies like this are so special to us. Line. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Hot August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel group telling you this town that can all change like that hey you're Rick fucking Dalton don't you forget it Okay, so next up was Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I'm not really gonna go that much into this film because there's so much to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, I, I've, I was okay with it the first time I saw it. I think I began to love it the second time that I saw it, and I'm really looking forward to going back to it a third time. But I decided to pick this film for one thing, actually, which when I was watching it, it really did remind me of something that I particularly enjoy. And it's when the Margot Robbie character goes to the cinema to watch her own film. 
and she's kind of crossing the road and it's this beautiful sunny day outside and i think you can assume it's like sort of sometime in the afternoon and what it reminded me was of some most most july i, t- I take a, a week off normally to coincide with the last week of the tour de france and on one of the rest days i always make a point of going to watch a film at the cinema normally sort of like late morning early afternoon type of an arrangement and there is something really nice about having a day off work where you go into somewhere where you normally like normally I go into Manchester because where I work but going in there for pleasure and seeing people just going about their day lives and there's a really nice sort of feeling of I'm not at work and I'm doing what I want and something can I, I enjoy especially when it's a bright hot sunny day and you come out of the cinema afterwards and there's just kind of especially if you've seen a really good film and I think I actually did this with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I just remember walking out into the sun thinking that there was a you know the whole evening was still to go the weather was great I was going to probably go for a bit of a walk or kind of sit outside in my garden drink a bit of wine read a book and it just elicits a really nice happy feeling and that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did that for me and there's a real dreamlike nostalgia to this film it makes me want to go to that time and place in history and hang out in that Los Angeles because the last time I went to LA I have to say I was absolutely gobsmacked at how bad it was Um, this was two years ago and it it was a fairly I, I, I was pretty taken aback by by my experience of being there having i've been to la quite a few times and this was the first time in quite a long time i'd actually been there and the the difference i think was quite actually profound and although i was obviously never around in la during the um the the, the late 60s i certainly uh when, when you watch this film it makes you want to go back and i actually signed up to a rather um a brilliant facebook group um which is just basically old pictures of hollywood and I can't remember the lady's name who who curates that page, but she was on Brace and Alice's podcast sort of saying that um, when she was watching the film, she was just kind of so enthused seeing an LA brought to life like that. So that would be my other pick, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm actually going to go out and limb. I think this might in time become one of my favourite Quentin Tarantino films. We'll have to wait and see, but that is, I suppose, the, uh, the joy of repeat viewings. Hey, hop in, man. Hey, man, who's car? You know Wooderson? Oh. How's it going, man? Hey. Pretty good. How's it going with you? Say, man, you got a joint? Uh, no, not on me, man. <laughs> It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> Let me tell you what Melbourne Post is packing right here. Right? And next up, this was a tough one because I had a few... Richard Linklake to films on the um, on the list. Um, I was thinking about doing Before Sunset, but I decided instead um, to go with Dazed and Confused. So 1998 and my A-levels are over and done with. Um, okay summer job to earn a few quid for beers and a few months before university starts. Now, I'm not entirely sure if there is a moment in one's life where you are so in between two very different worlds. On the one hand, you are going from being top of the school pyramid with a kind of assuredness that brings. You have a degree of independence, a car possibly, you're 18. You can pretty much what you want without asking permission, but you're still there at the folks obeying, obeying some kinds of rules. 
but on the whole, an era is coming to an end and another one is very much about to begin. It's exciting, a bit scary, and you're young and you couldn't give a fuck. My summer of 98 was perfect. Football and tennis, a World Cup, a lot of booze in people's back gardens, a bit of, bit of a fling here and there, and lots of films to enjoy. If there is one film that to me defines that in-between phase, it has to be Richard Linklater's Days and Confused. Although taking place in the 70s, Linklater captures a universality to the film that one can only recognise in their life. The contemporary music of the 1970 used in the film was in my instance replaced with dance music. Stardust Music Sounds Better With You was the anthem of the summer in place of the film's Aerosmith. But that's by the by, Dazed and Confused is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It kind of has a narrative, but it's more about a type of film you just watch to hang out with the people in it. Yes, things do escalate and stuff happens, but for the most part it's the invocation of feeling and memory. Why I think it works is because on some level, you know that what you are watching most happened, most likely happened in Link Laker's life and somewhere, and, po and these people must be based on people he knew or amalgamations of people he used to hang out with. But it doesn't feel self-indulgent, it's personal, yes, but it also becomes personal to us, the viewer. The scene where the two teams are shaking hands, just mumbling, was one rep rep replicated many times in my life. The snog off an older woman, and by older I mean a year or two, but Jesus did it seem a big deal at the time, and trying to buy booze, drinking loads outdoors, and sneaking home at dawn, having had a fucking great time being young. And with the soundtrack of your life playing on your stereo and headphones, this may be a film set in the 70s, but the experience of those in it will be repeated year after year, from now until the end of time. It's a coming of age film, and I think it's one that gets that tone completely right. And for the record, yes, I did snog an older woman in 1998. She was a whole year older than me and was in her first year at university. And by God, did I think that was something to be proud of. Okay, so a group of beautiful 30-somethings travels to an island off the coast of Italy. They have a wander around and one of the party, a woman, goes missing. Did she fall in the sea? Is she hiding? Was she kidnapped? Did she escape off a boat to get away from her apparently unhappy life? It doesn't really matter because you'll never find out and no one really seems that bothered anyway. And of course the film I'm talking about is Michelangelo Antonioni's L'Aventura. I could speak for a probably about a year about this film and hopefully one day I really will, will do. But its inclusion here is simple. There is, in my opinion, no other time in the history of film where actors and actresses have looked better than 60s Italian cinema. Michelangelo Antonioni worships his star's sexuality and their star quality, most notably in this case Monica Vitti, his lover of many years. And what L'Aventura does is show you a group of people who on appearance appear to have it all, desperately trying to seek fulfilment and spiritual connection against the background of some of the most beautiful scenery known to man. And yes, we have been to Italy already with this, with Call Me By Your Name, but this film has a look in a way that I have never experienced before. You find yourself seeking meaning in the film. What did happen to the girl? Why is her best friend now seeing her lover? But for some, Leventure it might be the definition of boring. To me, however, it's the complete opposite. It has an allure, a mystery that keeps me coming back over and over. Many people, at the time of its release, found the film to be pretentious, dreary and nihilistic, and it is. But you're not, I don't think you're supposed to like anyone in it. One wonders to me if Antonio laughed to himself when he named the film L'Aventure or The Adventure, because this film is most definitely not very suspenseful. 
Yet, good lord, it is beautiful to watch. You can feel the heart of the sea, smell the ocean, and for two hours escape back to another time, somewhere more stylish, if not exactly de desirable world of rich, good-looking Italians. What do you do when you've trapped them? Who? The girls you collect through the system. Well, it depends. Are you setting a trap for me? Of course. And are you going to ask me back to your room? Yes. I see. And are you going to come? So I've decided on a kind of, I, I was consciously aware of the fact that I hadn't really been to Britain on this tour of um, films I liked in the summer. So I'm going to go back in time to the swinging 60s and a look at a film called The System. And this is a really interesting film, most notably, um, for one reason, it was directed by Michael Winner and yes, him of car insurance ads and Death Wish films. And don't let that put you off because The System is a really, really good film. It stars Oliver Reed as a cad at a seaside town who, along with his mates, try to woo female tourists and get some easy action. He is a callous, thoroughly unlikable cad, the type of man women love for about two weeks before being cruelly dumped for another model. And God knows we all know that type. But The Girl Getter is part of the kitchen sink drama and angry young man films. And for the life of me, I can't understand why people don't talk about it or indeed seem to like it more. Reed is magnetic in the film, beautiful looking and cruel. As much as it pains me to say he, this film is about toxic masculinity. Reed plays the character Tinker, who is quite content to have one night stand after one night stand in this small crappy town that only comes alive for about two weeks of every two months of every year, sorry. And his whole world is whole world view, sorry, is derailed when he falls in love with Nicola, played by Jane Murrow. Jane turns the tables on Tinker. He is the one who's being treated with derision and the rather horrible notion that she may be just too good for him, which she kind of is. The swinging 60s for its free love and hedonism has never seemed so unappealing. The cinematography by Nicholas Rio is well worth the price of admission alone, and it's genuinely beautiful to watch at times. Along with the soundtrack by The Searchers, this film does feel like a capsule, but make no mistake, it, is, it seems ahead of its time. It's relevant, it's an intelligent look at the interplay between the sexes, and at an hour and a half, it's the perfect length and never really seems to overstay its welcome. Winner may have been a bit of a creep, but by God, and he has made some truly awful films, but this is a really, really good debut, and I wonder where it all went wrong based on seeing this. I've been over your file very carefully, Mr. Black. Now you must understand, this is an insurance company. <laughs> yes, we, we guessed that. And we must have certain rules. One of them is, if the cover isn't paid, the insurance lapses. What do you mean? Well, you crashed on the 3rd of October. Your cover expired on the 1st. But it was only two days. Surely you could stretch a point. Look at him. He looks as if he couldn't stretch anything. I really don't think it necessary to talk like that. You know what I'm going to do? If I have to put myself in hock for the rest of my life, I'm going to get the best lawyer and sue the Excelsior. Come on, darling. So tell that to your board. You'll be hearing from my lawyer. So, from a director who has a slightly dodgy filmography to one who most certainly doesn't, The Running Man is a Carol Reed thriller. And I was going to pick the talented Mr. Ripley for this slot, but um, I, I decided I'm going to go with The Running Man instead. 
And of course we all know Cal Reed from The Third Man and the like, but by goodness, this film is a hidden gem. Made in 1963, it stars Lawrence Harvey as a man who fakes his own death through an insurance scam and heads off in exile in Spain with long-suffering girlfriend Stella, played by Lee Remick. Just as the pair think they might have gotten away with it all, Stella bumps into Stephen, played by Alan Bates, who is the very insurance man who covered the case in England. Is his being in Spain a coincidence? Is he on to them and is the game up? Despite the fact the running man has a one hour, a 104 minute running time, this honestly could have gone on for hours and I would have still loved it. It's not groundbreaking by any stretch of the imagination, but it managed to hold and build suspense perfectly. Reed toys with his characters, creating scenes that are almost unbearable in their tension. It kind of reminded me of the Safety Brothers recently uncut gems, whereby you don't necessarily like the people you're watching, but you want them to get themselves out of the hell they now find themselves in. Lawrence Harvey is superb. He is so unlikable to agree, but let's be honest, everyone loves a rogue and it's hard not to find yourself beginning to side with the man, despite the fact that he's such a complete and utter sod. Critics have said that Reed was too in love with the Malaga sunshine, but when it looks this good, how can you really care anyway? It drew me in and I never wanted to leave it. And I don't think there's anything better than when you become so invested in a film, immersed in another world. And let's be honest, these are films being suggested for a British summertime. So the chances are you will be watching it with the pissing rain outside. So at least for the time being of its running time, at least, you can escape and actually enjoy some nice weather and a cracking little thriller to boot. Last of all, I'm going to go with a film I have actually spoken about already um, many, many years ago. And I actually thought I'd go back and enjoy the very first James Bond again, uh, Doctor No. And why did I do this? Well, it's worth reminding yourself, I think, just how big Bond was in the context of the time it was released. It doesn't take much to see what people were going crazy for. Its effect on culture, not just film culture, was immense. And considering how big and daft Bond would go, this film almost feels like an art house experiment by comparison. Connery, of course, is brilliant, and by God, he looks cool. The opening introduction to the characters being one of the greatest entrances in cinema of all time. But that all being said, the film is great fun. The music, the locations, also around Dress in the Sea. It's cool in every way possible. And it looks absolutely beautiful on Blu-ray as well. I thoroughly enjoyed watching it again um, up in the film room. And uh, yeah, I... I the funny thing about it as well, when you watch this film, you instantly going to start kind of wanting to watch more of the Bond films, especially the Connery ones. So um, I can see myself over the next few months going back to some of these during these uh, summer months. But that's going to be it for this episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm a little bit different. I will be back as soon as humanly possible. I've got a few jobs on at the moment, so lots of filming and editing. So um, to break up that, I will no doubt be writing and recording more episodes there is going to be another film festival coming in june i am currently watching the films and uh, writing up and recording that so it should be good to drop um roughly is the same one that came out last year so many thanks for listening um i will be in contact soon bye